This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. In this episode, we join the Burgess Foundation's Andrew Biswell as he talks to Dr. Nathan Waddell about George Orwell, Anthony Burgess, and the art of dystopian fiction. Well, it's a pleasure to welcome to the Burgess Foundation podcast, Nathan Waddell, who's a senior lecturer in 20th century and modernist literature at Birmingham University. He's the author of two books, Moonlighting, a book about Beethoven and literary modernism, and also Modernist Nowheres, Politics and Utopia in Early Modernist Writing. He's also published on John Buchan, very interestingly, and has edited the Cambridge Companion to 1984. So our subject is Orwell and dystopia, giving, I hope, equal weight to both of those. Um, Nathan, welcome. I'm keen to start off by asking you how you first encountered Orwell's writing and indeed how far your impression of him has changed since then. Well, yeah, thank you so much for having me. I mean, it's a a real pleasure to be here. Um, I first encountered Orwell at school, like I think a lot of people will have. I mean, I'm I'm teaching a, a final year undergraduate module at Birmingham at the moment on Orwell. And uh, most of the students who were taking that module encountered Orwell in that same way, you know, through GCSE or A-level study. And I'm I'm no different. I'm no exception. I had a a really sort of Orwell-obsessed um, A-level English teacher who built on the encounters with Animal Farm that we'd had at GCSE. And he sort of said to us one day, you know, if you like, um, if you like Animal Farm, you'll love 1984. So we... A few of us dutifully went away and read it. And I think like many people who are aged, you know, 16, 17, 18, when they encounter a book like that, feel like their minds have just been ripped open and and exposed to things that they didn't necessarily know about or, or, or knew about the world before. So for me, it was very much a rite of passage in that respect. Um, and it was so uh, sort of captivating that I wrote an, an incredibly bad stage adaptation of it, um, which my wow. school was very indulgent and, and, and we, and we performed it at my school. Um, it was okay, you know, but it was, it was a, an interesting exercise in, for me in retrospect, now thinking about it, of, of reading something, being completely swept away by it and then being prompted to write something myself in response to it. So that was, that was how I first came into sort of Orwell's orbit. Very interesting. I mean, my story is rather different. I was off school. I was ill. I was about 10 years old, and I found my sister's copy of 1984. And I, I kind of heard of it. I didn't know what it was about. And I tried to read it. I got quite a long way with it. I was very bored by the sex. I couldn't see the point of that at the age of 10. Quite enjoyed the torture and the rats. That seemed fairly interesting. Um, and I guess I probably still feel the same way about the book, even after all these years. Um, Now, one of the things that I I hope we might touch on, um, one of the connections between George Orwell and Anthony Bird is is that they both began their careers as servants of the British Empire. Orwell, as we know from Burmese days and so on, was a policeman in Burma. Burgess, um, rather later, was an education officer in Malaya. Um, But with Orwell, how do you think that experience of colonialism gets reflected in his writing? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think it's really fundamental. You know, it's 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 the key event for him in so many ways um, of his life. You know, he 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 goes from Eton, from being a school um, 
you know, a, a, a school pupil at Eton and is then sent, you know, across the world to the other side of the world. He chooses to go there instead of going, say, to, to university, which might have been a slightly more typical uh, destination for somebody in his position. And so he goes to Burma and he has the formative experience of his life, which comes to be extremely disturbing for him. Um, if you read The Road to Wigan Pier, for example, in the second half of that book, when Orwell is looking back on his formative experiences and is trying to use that as a springboard for thinking about how socialism, you know, how, how socialism might be thought differently in response to capitalism and the fascist menace in the 1930s, he touches on Burma so frequently in that as to signal how presently it was still in his in his mind. I know that quite a few scholars have have written about have written about this so I'm I'm by no means the first person to make this argument but but Burma is there in every single novel in some form be it through allusions to the smell and taste of a jungle for example you know the sort of the sweaty heat of a jungle in say a simile in in a novel right up to um, the the implications of what Orwell saw as the despotic implications of imperialism as a politics in 1984. You know, it's so 1984, despite not really being about colonial experience, at least on the face of it, is is shot through with with Orwell's extreme concern about despotism and tyranny, and that begins for him in in Burma. I mean, I. I wanted to read out actually because I was thinking about this the other day. There's a little passage in Burmese days when um, the narrator describes the world of empire as a stifling, stultifying world in which to live. It is a world in which every word and every thought is censored. You know, it's it's 1984. It's the beginnings of 1984. It's not that Orwell knows he's going to write that book in that moment, but. It's all there. So, so for me, you know, and, and as you say, as transmitted through Burmese days is a, is, a, is a key factor in thinking our way into Orwell's mind. Very interesting. And also, you've got me thinking about the novel that you've just edited. Um, you're responsible for the world's classics edition of A Clergyman's Daughter, one of the novels of the 30s that Orwell later kind of disowned and wanted almost removed from his canon or his collected edition. Um, let's say a bit about that novel. It's always struck me as a much kind of underrated piece of the Orwell canon. Formally, very interesting. You make a very good case for it as experimental. Um, but how is it connected, do you think, to Orwell's other writing, especially his novels? Hmm. Yeah, it, it is a strange book. So my mother just finished reading it and she said, uh, what a depressing book. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know it, it's interesting that, that that was her response to it because there, I think there are lots of different ways of reading the novel um, and of sort of a, arriving at different interpretations of it. So although, as you say, Orwell was never particularly pleased with it and you know um, describes it in expletive laden terms in in sort of later years and, and just thought it was a mess and never really wanted anything to do with it ever again. Um, there are so many aspects of it that are really fascinating here. I mean it. You could view it as a novel about how to come to terms with writing novels, which might sound like a slightly odd thing to say, but but we have to remember that Orwell really is quite a a new fiction writer when he writes this book. You know, he's he's there's Burmese days, of course, and there's journalism sort of swirling around his head, but 
he's not really practiced as a novelist and doesn't really get practiced until he is almost at the end of his life. So, so it's a strange book. Um, and its main influence, particularly in its most experimental section, so the central section, which derives a lot of its formal properties from James Joyce's Ulysses, is is as a gesture. I think it's fascinating. It's a really interesting kind of move on Orwell's part to try, and to for a time anyway, to write in the mode of a writer that Joyce that he admired. This is often just not known. You know, a lot of people just don't know that this. Um, that this that this aspect of Orwell's output even exists. So, so for that reason, I think it's worth paying attention to. Um, I have to say, actually, that the experience of editing A Clergyman's Daughter is probably the most fun I've had doing anything in my scholarly career to date. It's just, I think there's something about being obliged to spend quite an extended period of time. So it took about a year to do um, in really close-up, fine-grained company with with the words of one novelist and one novel in particular and thinking about how it opens out onto all the other things that he that he wrote so to get onto the other part of your question you know how does it relate to the rest of what Orwell did and was doing there are sections of the book which are very similar to the road to Wigan Pier in that they seem to be lifted almost without being edited from his diary and in and in this case I'm thinking of a diary um, that he kept that's in in editions of Orwell is, is labeled as you know a hop picking di- diary because he was he spent time picking hops in Kent um, in the road to Wigan Pier there's similar stuff taken from Orwell's diary as he was going between you know towns and villages um, in the in the industrial north of England so so there's an element of a clergyman's daughter which is sort of very thinly disguised quickly written diaristic material which is kind of awkwardly packaged together with a a really curious novel of coming into adulthood through a set of bewildering experiences that occur to the protagonist Dorothy Hare which is Orwell's only uh, woman protagonist and is debatably successful I think although much more successful than perhaps Orwell like to admit Um, you can also trace through that novel and this is always a risky thing to do, but I think it's it's again it's it's pretty interesting to do connections with that work and the later novels that Orwell came to write. So there's there, again there are lots of connections with 1984, lots of interesting things to do with education and how education is a kind of tyrannical, at least in the in the hands of Mrs. Creevy, the sort of the evil school teacher in that book. Um, her, her approach is tyrannical and despotic, and there we are. We're back in the world of Burma yet again. So there are there are really interesting overlaps here, um, and it's a, it's a novel that I think should be much more widely read. Although I don't think, you know, I'm going to change anybody's mind. I think it remains the the least accomplished of his novels, but certainly not the most uninteresting. This brings us quite neatly to the bigger question of dystopia. Um, but I'm also interested in utopia as the other coin of that. And I-, I wanted to ask you how Orwell came to be interested in utopias and dystopias as forms he wanted to explore. Um, he was obviously very interested in Jonathan Swift. There's the long essay uh, on Swift and Gulliver. But I wonder if there are other elements that kind of feed into his writing in those forms. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, he. we know that one of the earliest encounters Orwell had 
with the genre of utopian writing specifically was um, H.G. Wells's book, A Modern Utopia. And it seemed to have prompted something in him, gave him the thought that one day he would, he would have liked, he would like to write something similar. And, you know, eventually that, that comes to be true. Um, I mean, the, the thing that, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm a big admirer of H.G. Wells, but the thing that's that's absent, I think, from a work like A Modern Utopia is at some level sort of the human interest that, that Orwell packs into 1984, say, or Animal Farm. Um, a Modern Utopia is a, is a fascinating work of ideas, but it's not necessarily, at least for me, the most sort of exciting or captivating human story. Um, you know, and it's riddled with prejudice as well. So there's all sorts of problematic elements to it. But certainly for Orwell, you know, H.G. Wells is a really important factor in and a coordinate sort of in relation to which he develops his own thoughts on the question of utopia, the problem of utopia. And then, as you say, there's Swift. Um, and I think Swift is interesting here, not only for perhaps the more obvious reason to do with satire, you know, um, Orwell by some measure learns how to be a satirist through reading people like Swift and Dickens and Gissing and Kipling even you know these these writers all sort of feed into his satiric imagination but again something that Swift seems to present that's really important in my view is an interest in the body and the 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 disgusting nature of the body the 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 horrid um sort of feel and sight of skin um there's a passage in that essay that you mentioned where uh, Orwell is talking about Swift's understanding of the body and he makes the point that, you know, the human body can be ideal, it can be beautiful, but it is more often ridiculous and is malfunctioning in some way. And Orwell is far more interested in that. I mean, we sticking just with 1984, one of the first things we learn about Winston Smith is that he's, he's ulcerated. He has a, he has a, a like a, a, an ulcer that he keeps scratching and, it's it's reiterated throughout the book. His body is not working. You know, the body, the body politic, you know, the, these associations between ideas seem to come to Orwell, I think, through a, a really thorough grounding in the history of those sorts of associations between body and meaning that someone like Swift does so effectively. Um, there are other people to mention here, you know, Aldous Huxley, for example, um, Yevgeny, Yevgeny Zamyatin, uh, the author of We, um, is is a really important uh, sort of influence on Orwell. The, I mean the 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 conversation between Huxley and Orwell, the sort of the implied conversation between Huxley and Orwell that goes on between their respective dystopian novels, so Brave New World and um, 1984, is also really interesting here because of how they each viewed, I think, the problem of modernity and the role of utopian thought within it. Huxley seems to have taking this interest in pleasure. You know, pleasure is the thing that will entrap people. Whereas for Orwell, it's pain, he seems to think anyway, through 1984. So, I mean, there are lots of different ways of coming at this question, I think, in short. One of the things we've done over the last couple of years is we had at the Burgess Foundation an Orwell reading group. And we worked through the the, the canon of fiction and non-fiction books and looked at the essays as well. Um, you may find it a slightly obvious point, but People were very struck by the, the continuities between Animal Farm, which was the book we read first, and 1984, which was the book we read last. And one of the points that occurred to me was that both of these novels are in some way connected to Orwell's experiences in the Spanish Civil War. And I wonder what you 
made of that and, and whether or not you regard them as as kind of connected and, and similar works. I do. So a pedagogical problem I've always had with teaching Animal Farm is that, and 1984, and often either one before or one after the other, is that they, they seem almost to be about exactly the same things. So in a sense, how do you how do you move on from sort of one week to the other in terms of what you what you speak about? And one of the ways that I've come to think about that problem, if it is a problem, uh, you know, it's an opportunity as well, is to go, as you say, to homage to Catalonia and, and Orwell's participation in the Spanish Civil War and, and what that meant for him. I, I think personally, and, and again, by no means the first to make this claim, homage to Catalonia is the is the key work for understanding Orwell far more than Animal Farm or 1984, however brilliant they are. If you get what's going on in Homage to Catalonia, and by what's going on, I mean his account of you know truth, truth under fire, the, the sort of swirling propaganda machine that Orwell was witnessing firsthand on the ground in the various sort of places in Spain that he was fighting and, and reading newspaper reports about it and then seeing that subsequent versions of events didn't match up with what he saw and thought at the time you know all those sorts of considerations and then of course the 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 crackdown on the anarchist group with which he was fighting um, that he just only just escaped from all of that as a lived experience feeds into very obviously into 1984 in the story of Winston Smith although Winston Smith is not so lucky as Orwell was you know despite getting shot during that period he he, he nevertheless survived um, and yet also in Animal Farm, I mean, Animal Farm is a wonderful book in terms of how it condenses all of that information into, you know, the beast fable mode and, and uses that material and information really effectively and efficiently. But there's also at the same time a sense, certainly for me, when, when reading that book, that it all seems to be so self-evident. You know, the way it's presented makes the claims that Orwell is prosecuting there in terms of the threat of, you know, um, communist totalitarianism or, or even just totalitarianism if you want to sort of view it in slightly more abstract terms the the one of the benefits of the beast fable mode is that it just makes those things self-evidently wrong and there's there's little room for nuance although it is more complicated than that but it's just a very powerful moral fable and so sometimes when i'm speaking with students about it they can kind of say to me well, I don't really know what to say because it's just sort of I agree or or I disagree, you know, with this aspect of it. But what Orwell seems to be saying comes through so clearly, and then it's given extra weight and extra heft in 1984. So that they're all inextricably connected and they overlap to a to a large extent. But certainly, what I would say to people um, who perhaps haven't read Homage to Catalonia is, if you read that book with 1984 and Animal Farm Farm in mind, you will see so quickly and so clearly how. Orwell wasn't just writing about an abstract thing that he never experienced, um, you know, because he mentions in other essays that, you know, he's he has no inside firsthand knowledge of Soviet Russia, but he does have firsthand insider knowledge of what was going on there in the form of how it was happening in Spain, in revolutionary Spain. So, so it, it's a key work. And um, Lisa Mullen, who's edited the new edition of that for the Oxford World's Classic Series, uh, Oxford World's Classic Series, gives you know, that side of it, a, a huge amount of heft and, and importance. Going 
on, I suppose, to 1984, uh, but still thinking about some of the, the questions we've been considering to do with form and genre, it seems to me that 1984, it, it's quite an odd book, and maybe generically it hasn't got that much in common with Orwell's other novels, though it always seems to me one of the things it has got a lot of in common with is his political essays. Um, and I'm thinking in particular of the section where Winston sits down and he, he reads the book, the, uh, the Goldstein book. Um, but thinking about 1984, I wonder whether that particular novel coming right at the end of his career, and clearly if he'd lived longer, I'm sure he'd have written many other books, kind of distorts our impression of what he set out to do as a novelist. And I wonder what you make of that. Hmm. There's a there's a really interesting remark that Burgess makes in 1985 near the beginning when he says that only Bertrand Russell saw that this, meaning 1984, was that rare thing, a philosophical novel. Um, and I think that that has become the way a lot of readers tend to think about the book, even if they've not read it, even if they've only heard of it sort of secondhand or, or at third hand. They, they think of it as a, a philosophical novel or a novel of ideas, you know, a, a story where opposed thoughts are pitched against one another. And through a story, those things are, you know, they either are or are not resolved. Um, and, and it does stand out from the rest of the work in that respect, although it depends on what level you think about the writing. So, for example, if, if your interest in Orwell is, as I mentioned earlier, ordinariness and everydayness, there is actually far less to differentiate the novels, in my view, because so much of what Orwell writes about in all six of his novels, if you include Animal Farm in that, um, is just ordinary things like, what's it like to wake up? What's it like to put a cigarette in your mouth and to realise that the cigarette's not very good? What's it like to have a shave? What's it like to walk down a street? You know, these, these things are not necessarily the stuff of dystopia, Although they do, they do become that in Orwell's hands, but they are everywhere in his in his writing. So, if you come at Orwell from the position of someone who has only encountered Orwell through the dystopian work, then you are going to have a slightly odd sense of what he's doing as a novelist. And that, for example, is one of the reasons why I wanted to set up a module about Orwell um, at university, so that people could have the opportunity, much like you did in the reading group that you mentioned, to read through everything you know the, the large works that he wrote and to see both the differences and the continuities across all of those long books. I mean, I think the, the question of distortion, to what extent this distorts you know, our impression of him, I think one of, the, one of the mistakes that we might make here is, as you say, thinking about Orwell as the last book, as the culminating work. You know, it, it turned out to have been that because he dies shortly after it appears. But we know from... If you if you consult the um, the Peter Davison complete works, you know that magisterial twenty volume set of of Orwell's writing. There are sketches and notes in there at the very end in the final volume for for material that Orwell wanted to write after nineteen eighty four. And interestingly, he wanted to go back to Burma. He wanted to write another Burma inflected, Burma focused work of fiction. So. So there's a lot of threads coming together here from our conversation, you know, um, Burma running through all of this. And it was clearly going to carry on running through all of it. But also Orwell didn't necessarily think of 1984 as the last word on him as a novelist. You know, he he, he had other things that he wanted to achieve. And 
unfortunately was not able to to pursue them. I remember reading his notes about um, an essay that he didn't live to write out in full um, about evil in war and about mm. the the importance of architecture in and big houses in the novels of evil in war. And you know, I'd have been fascinated to to see that yeah. had he lived to accomplish it. And as you say, it's clear that there were there were other works, rather different works, that he was planning. Now, you mentioned Burgess very kindly, and one of the claims he makes for 1984 is he he says. Um, perhaps provocatively, that it's a comic novel or it could be understood in that way. And I wonder if you think there's any mileage in this, whether it's a a useful or a fair thing to say about the novel. I think it is. I mean, the the thing that I like about Burgess and the thing that takes me back to Burgess is just how, you know, how, how... how um, much he relishes the counterposition, the the countervailing argument, the 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 counterintuitive point of view, and to then make a real virtue of that in 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 sort of arguing his way through it. I mean, maybe we need to think about 1984 on multiple levels here. It's comic. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but what Burgess seems to be thinking here about comic is that it's comic in the way that, say, a music hall performance might be comic. Um, and I think I'm quoting him correctly when he says the comedy of the all too recognizable, um, you know, the sort of the ordinary mix and jumble and hilarity of things happening day to day in a, in a mixture of stuff that points to deeper, more problematic implications sitting behind them or underneath them or around them. Um, so there's that kind of comedy. I think if you have a dark sense of humor, so if you have a sort of black sense of humor, as people say, sometimes you, um, you might find comedy in the sheer awfulness of the situation. Um, you know, Winston Smith, everything that happens to him <laughs> is bad. Um, and there's a kind of an unrelenting um, awfulness about it, an unrelenting sourness maybe to the way his life is is unfolding. Um, I mean, one of the bits in the book that sometimes makes me laugh because it's just such a, a weird insight into Orwell's mind is when Winston and Julia go to O'Brien's apartment and the first thing that seems to stick in Winston's mind is he notices the plush carpet in the hallway. And and I've always thought that was just an odd little detail. You know, he's sort of, of all the things that he could be thinking of at that moment, he notices the carpet. And, it, and it's just a, a wonderful kind of odd little, little aside. Um, whether people laugh out loud when they read 1984, I don't know. Um, I mean, there's another thing I remember reading in 1985 when uh, Burgess is talking about the um, the Italian translation of 1984, and he he's talking about the the famous opening. It was a bright cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. And he says, "You laugh or smile, and perhaps even shudder as well." And and that. Again, I, I kind of agree. I, I, I see what he's getting at, although I can't personally say that I've ever laughed out loud at it. But there is this there is this sense of a world that is just being pushed far enough outside of the ordinary realm of experience to be unnerving and terrifying. Um, and there is a kind of dark comedy in that, in the sense that we don't really know what's going to come next. Another thought that occurs to me here is you might think about the generic structure of comedic writing where you have an individual who is thrown into a set of obstacles and has to sort of overcome them and then 
you know, if we think about more recent sort of filmic comedy, you know, those things happen and then everything turns out for the best and there might be some kind of implied moral message at the end of it. I mean, that is 1984 all over. You know, uh, Winston Smith is the individual aghast at his circumstances, can't really do anything about them, finds himself in a series of obstacles and overcomes them. And if you adhere to the party line, that's all good because he loves Big Brother, you know. Uh, there's a kind of, again, a sort of twisted humour in that. But at the same time, pushing against it always is the sense for Orwell, I think, that, you know, this is really happening in the world. This is this is not a nightmare. This is This is reality for millions of people. And he's trying to write his way to a position of alerting as many people as possible to that fact in a in an imaginatively persuasive form. I think there's a lot of gallows humour that Burgess mm. recognises in 1984, yeah. which is completely continuous with his own practice. I'm thinking of the Enderby novels, which pick up on a number of the things you've mentioned, the, the kind of shame and disgust, distaste anyway, about the physical body and the ways in mm. which it can let you down. And also the the whole sense of humiliation that, that each thing that happens to Winston or to Enderby maybe in the Burgess novels is is kind of slightly more uh, appalling than the thing that's just happened. Uh, and there's a sense of both writers, I think, sort of testing their their characters to see how much they can endure. And maybe that's something quite important that, you know, I, I, I see only now as you've spoken about it, that Burgess is taking from Orwell, uh, which isn't really a kind of formal or generic thing, but it's an approach to, uh, to story and character and so forth. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, the the protagonist of a clergyman's daughter, Dorothy Hare, that novel in many ways is a is a is a testing ground for how much she can endure. Um, you know, she just goes through she she's physically assaulted, she's thrown out on the street, she has to work for a slave driver in the form of Mrs. Creevy, and then she returns to the patriarchal environment from which she originally was forced out through circumstances not of her own making. And we have to decide what to make of that. You know, is it a happy ending or a sad ending? Um, you know, putting it very reductively. Orwell seems to have been fixated on this. I think partially because his own life was a sequence of similar encounters. You know, I mean, he he was he was constantly ill, then was shot, um, survives, ill again, um, you know, and on it goes. He's He had a very poor physical existence in that sense. He was always aware of his body for the wrong reasons. And that surely has to make itself felt in imaginative writing. And certainly people have made the, the, the claim, the very convincing claim to me that 1984 is, is the work of an ill, dying man. And you can feel that somehow in the prose. Burgess makes the point, writing about 1984 in the first half of 1985, his commentary on Orwell, that he says it, you could read this novel, Orwell's novel, as a documentary account of what England was like after the end of the Second World War, uh, a time of great shortages and rationing and deprivations. And I wonder what you make of that as an argument, how how true it seems to your own experience of reading the book. I think, it, well, yeah, I, I agree pretty completely, to be honest. Um, it's more 1984 when I first read it, so... As I say, back when I was at school, it seemed to me to be this imaginative projection, this this fantasy about power and torture and horror and um, 
John Bowen actually in his in his edition. So this is another edition in that series that I mentioned, the Oxford World's Classic Edition of Orwell. In his introduction to 1984, he makes this claim. You know that the book is a is a horror book, a gothic novel that that has a lot of horror and terror to it. Over time, I've increasingly come to appreciate how Orwell was really writing about the moment in which he was alive, you know, the sort of the bombed remnants of a world and turns that into a driving form of narrative interest. You know, the book is, we can get a sense for what it might have felt like to walk through a street destroyed during the Blitz by reading 1984. There are so many moments in it where that sort of physical environment and, you know, the architectural ruins of such an environment loom so largely that to, to, to say that it's about the future is, I think, just incorrect. It's, it's not, for me, a book about the future. It's a book about the present in which it was written. And at some level, that's merely to repeat the cliche of, you know, uh, how most understandings or most definitions of dystopia are articulated, which is to say that they're not really about the future. They're about the moments in which they're produced, which is a truism as well as a cliche. Um, but at the same time, I think it's really important to appreciate that, in the, specifically in the case of Orwell, precisely because of its influence. You know, it's become so omnipresent and so thoroughly available to people as a shorthand for talking about political developments in the late 20th and now 21st century, um, that we have to remind ourselves of the specificity of its intervention. You know, it, it is a book of its time and is limited by that, but also has you know, it is valuable because of that as well. So it's, it's again, it's a complex kind of relationship between history and the present and the present and the future there for Orwell. Um, and we do well to be cognizant of that when we're talking about it, I think. Do you think it's a novel that's sometimes uh, misused in uh, contemporary discourse? I'm thinking particularly of, you know, some right-wing people being banned from Twitter or other social media platforms might claim they're the victims of some kind of uh, what they would call Orwellian censorship. Um, and I wonder if if that is a fair reading or a misreading of the novel. Yeah, the, so um, Dorian Linsky talks a fair bit about this in his book on Orwell, um, on 1984 specifically, the Ministry of Truth that came out a little while ago, um, and makes the claim there, again, picking up on a lot of earlier scholarship, that Orwell kind of has meant anything to anybody um, over time, there's always been different groups of sometimes quite starkly opposed political persuasions that find their Orwell in 1984. So, so it's a sort of um, what some people call, you know, like a Rorschach test of a, of a book. You look into it and you see what you want to find. I mean, the claim specifically about being banned from Twitter for saying something that you know perhaps you shouldn't have, uh, putting it mildly is Orwellian somehow in the sense of the sort of that totalitarian censorship. I think it's just ludicrous. Um, not only because Twitter is an entirely voluntary form of communication. <laughs> um, you don't have to use it. it. Obviously, it enables an enormous reach and it's a massive platform on which to speak if, if you choose to use it or can be. Um, but the claim that somehow that's preventing people from being heard is laughable to me. Not only... Uh, for those reasons, but also because a lot of the people who are making those claims, particularly in the American context, um, I'm thinking of members of a certain uh, recently um, departed political family here who recently left the White House, um, are so massively influential in other respects and could quite easily be heard 
in, in, in all sorts of other ways and are often being heard even as they say those things. They're often, you know, writing articles in newspapers or they're on television or, you know, they're, however they're being sort of put into the public eye. So, so Orwell has become the wrong kind of shorthand for certain complaints. And, and, and because of that, it's really important to keep reading the book rather than talking about the book if Orwell is the person you want to talk about. Because the the discourse that's grown up around his work and the sort of the reputational um, language that's come about as a, as a consequence of it has, has floated away from the particularities of the novel to such an extent that often people just aren't talking about Orwell anymore when they say Orwellian. They just mean prevented from saying something I'd like to say and often forgetting that what they want to say is vicious or abusive or racist or intolerant in some form and they shouldn't be saying it in the first place. Well, I'm very pleased that you, you are, in a sense, uh, you know, one of the true Orwellians in, in, in that you're, you're going back to the text and thinking in great detail about the individual words and phrases on the page. Um, that, that's very cheering in all kinds of ways. I wanted to ask you also um, about the appendix, the Principles of Newspeak, which appears at the end of 1984. And it seems to me that's quite a difficult piece of writing. There are questions of, of tone and irony um, maybe even elements of satire and joking there. How do you think we should read that closing section of the novel? Yeah, this is a difficult one. There's there's a sense in which that appendix is... So an example I often use is, uh, you know, can be thought of quite differently from, say, Tolkien's appendix to The Lord of the Rings, where really the function of that appendix is to enable Tolkien to just say more than he was able to say even in that enormous book you know and to give more information about the background and the backstory and the genealogies of the characters and and the history of the invented languages and so forth you know it goes on and on and on um so there's, there's that kind of appendix for Orwell I think at some level it's very much about that also it's about helping his readers come to see the thought process that informed his invention of newspeak and, and and what he had in mind because in the actual novel you you get a a pretty thorough sense of what newspeak is is about and for and why it matters but you don't really have a sense of how it might be used practically you know how, how you would actually exist in a world that, that only had newspeak and maybe that's part of the point maybe Orwell's implied point is that no such world is possible um, I mean there's there's this tradition of interpreting the appendix that takes it as confirmation um, you know, I, Margaret Atwood, for example, um, and, and several others are, are sort of in this camp where they view it as confirmation that the the world as we see it told to us, the world of Oceania, has fallen away because the Newspeak Appendix is written in non-Newspeak. It's written in sort of ordinary English. And so if that's true, then that suggests another moment in the history that Orwell was imagining when one could look back at the period of Newspeak that is now safely over and write about it as a historian. I I like that argument, but I'm not persuaded by it. Um, because if that's true, <laughs> then what a woefully ineffective way of making that argument, you know, on Orwell's part. There surely would have been better ways of doing it, namely making it part of the story, I would have thought, um, and actually trying to incorporate that somehow into the complexities of the of the fiction one of my phd students at the moment um 
a chap called Liam, um, Liam Knight, is writing a PhD thesis about what he's calling endotextuality and the 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 sort of the incorporation of texts within texts in dystopian writing. And he's really giving some long thought to this. And it, it, it's very clear that once you start to think about um, the appendix to 1984 as a sort of origin point for this mode of structuring a dystopian novel, that opens out onto lots of other works. So another obvious comparison point here is um, The Handmaid's Tale, which has a similar ending, although it functions in a, in a different way. In there, it's called Historical Notes. Um, but the the sort of the political implications of that in contrast to the Newspeak appendix are quite different. I just wanted to say one final thing about the the satire or the irony that that might be there. I mean, maybe that the the argument that the appendix somehow suggests that Oceania could never come about and if if it did would fall away is naive. Um, there's every sign. Um, then and now that these sorts of futures are entirely possible and in fact desired by quite a large slice of the voting public, let alone the kind of oppressed public. Um, So I think part of what Orwell is perhaps signalling there is an irony about being too comfortable about the thought that there might be such a moment, that there might be a moment where the history of a place like Oceania has been superseded. This This is maybe sort of... Sort of arguing quite quite abstractly around the novel's particulars, but perhaps what what the ending of 1984 is really getting us to think about is not the possibility of overcoming Oceania, but preventing it from coming into place at all to begin with, and and that I think is aligns all well with someone like J.G. Ballard, who you know and Burgess uh, for wanting always to say you know beware beware the signs look around carefully, take note of what's happening in your environment. And these early warning signals that we're writing about as novelists and sort of elaborating on and building entire fictional worlds off the back of, here's how you might spot them. And once spotted, do something about it. Don't let this happen. You know, that's Orwell's position um, by the end of his life, I think. I wanted very briefly, perhaps, to, to, to bring in some of the birdist dystopias. Um, I mean, obviously, th- there is A Clockwork Orange, but also there's the second half of 1985, a, a rather sort of difficult book, not universally acclaimed as a complete success, even by the people who like Burgess. Um, I wonder what you make of um, the two halves of 1985, the commentary and the novella, and indeed whether A Clockwork Orange seems more satisfactory as a piece of dystopian fiction yeah i used to teach 1985 at nottingham when i worked there i, I taught a, a module on dystopian 20th century dystopias and we did 1985 at least once or twice and there was a sense amongst the students and me as well as as somebody sort of trying to get them to think about it that it, it was a, a weirdly unsatisfying book it, it's kind of like an, an inverted road to wigan pier in some ways so you've got that very characterful discussion of 1984 and the first half of 1985. And then you've got the sort of the short story or the novella that, that follows it. Whereas in The Road to Wigan Pier, you've got the the lightly fictionalized sociological kind of story of poverty and industrial kind of deprivation in the first half. And then you've got the more theoretical account that comes after it. So there's, there's an intriguing parallel there between Orwell and Burgess. For me, what what 1985 struggles under the weight of is its duty to Orwell. 
And, and by that, what I mean is if you're going to write a story, so a sort of a, a, a creative piece in that sense, a fiction that is drawing on and trying to update 1984 and to do something differently with you know how things might have turned out years later, you're, you're always having to prove, first of all, the extent to which you've digested the the sort of the antecedent work, so in this case, Orwell, whilst also doing something new and interesting for yourself, you know, as a writer. And that's quite a burden to operate under. So I wonder whether, you know, whether the story suffers to an extent because of that. So that the, you know, the protagonist, Bev, um, to me, just doesn't have the same kind of human interest as Winston, despite not really being any more thoroughly sketched in as a character. You know, Winston's quite empty, actually, as a character in some ways. But I think it's something to do, for me anyway, it's something to do with that, that that laboring under the relationship between works, as opposed to, say, just starting afresh, as he does with A Clockwork Orange. The, the thing with A Clockwork Orange that I think takes it onto, into a whole new um, sort of domain or realm is the, 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 the inventiveness of the language, the, the thrill of that for Burgess. You know, Burgess, another great Joyce fan, um, that comes across very clearly in, in A Clockwork Orange um, and sort of unmistakably so. So there's also a, a, a greater coherence of form there with the idea, you know, something that Orwell didn't do, maybe he should have, was write 1984 in Newspeak. Although it might not have been possible um, because he wanted, of course, to say that Newspeak didn't allow for thoughts of insurrection. So that might have been too much of an ask. But what Burgess manages to do is to create that harmony between form and content that really elevates it into a whole new space. So so for me, it's a more successful book for that reason. You know, as, a, as, a, as an aesthetic object, as a, as a work of the creative imagination, it has more integrity in the neutral sense you know it's an integrated work it's a cohesive text um, whereas 1985 almost by definition has to be fragmented because of what Burgess sets out to do you know he has this as I say this more theoretical discussion followed by the more character driven plotted story that follows it um, but it certainly lingers you know it, it I, I've never forgotten 1985 um, and will often quote from it in trying to get students to think differently about Orwell so maybe less successful as a story, but brilliantly successful as a critique of Orwell. And we're back with the idea of Burgess as sort of provocateur uh, again, mm. the, uh, the, the, the sayer of, um, you know, the, the statement that's, that's perhaps designed to be argued with, um, like you. Yes. I mean, it's the, it's the first half of the book that I go back to. The, um, the, the, the novella itself is... I think, I mean, difficult is putting it politely, but, you know, of all his novels, maybe it's the one he was least certain about. It's also, I think, one of the few books he wrote to commission rather than, you know, mm -hmm. sort of it emerging from a, a kind of felt desire or wish to, to sort of say something definite. Um, you're very active on your website in your um, your reading Orwell project, which is is growing in various forms. You're, you're writing and you're, you're speaking it to some extent. For people who, who don't know it, could you just sort of outline what are the aims of that project and what you've discovered through the doing of it? Yeah, it it began pre-COVID, um, pre-pandemic, and I was just sort of toying with possibilities. Um, I'd, at an earlier point, set up a podcast, which was kind of in the mold of 
um, Jim Al-Khalili's The Life Scientific, where he gets people on as sort of fellow scientists and he just talks to them about their career. And I wanted to do something similar with that. And I had a go and I, and I made a series of it. And this is all just me doing it on my own. So it, it's very kind of rough and ready. Um, and that taught me a lot about just how one can articulate things differently in the medium of talking, you know, of conversation. And so I'm going to continue with that podcast, but it, but it led indirectly to this Reading All Well project, which for me is, a, is an attempt to give myself the opportunity through writing about Orwell's texts chapter by chapter and then recording those things and sort of disseminating them through through the airwaves, um, sort of paying real close attention to his work. So, so reading Orwell began and will continue after I've got through the current phase of it as a series of chapter by chapter commentaries on 1984. My goal is to do chapter by chapter commentaries for every single long work that Orwell wrote. It's quite an ambitious thing to to do because there's a lot of chapters in Orwell's books, and I don't know if I'll ever get there, but but I'll I'll have a go. Um, and this is, of course, all being fitted around everything else that's going on um, in one's life. So it, it's there's there's not often a lot of, a lot of time for it. But recently, it's become very helpful for teaching and also for just um, you know uh, doing. Th- something like we're doing at the moment, interviewing people. So I, I want to use it also to interview the editors of the Oxford, the new Oxford edition of Orwell to really help them, you know, reach further audiences and to, and to get people in the know about their, their editions, but also to use that as an opportunity for connecting with people in other parts of, of the world who one might not ordinarily get the chance to speak to if you weren't doing podcasts. So, Orwell collectors, um, Orwell scholars in other countries, you know, these sorts of things. Talking to those people about Orwell, their interest in Orwell, why Orwell matters to them, is really at some level just me trying to to, to develop a repository of information about Orwell that, that I hope has just a general interest, but might also be more specifically useful to undergraduate students and secondary school students who you know, there's certainly no shortage of, of material aimed at those audiences about Orwell, but there's there's not that much that is expressed conversationally. And and to me, that's just an exciting new area to, to, to operate in. I'm finding it, I'm learning a lot about how to be concise uh, and to, you know, not that you might know it from the length of this answer, but but also how to just be clear and to say what I think and to say what I mean. And it's it's helping me a lot, even as I'm learning a lot about Orwell. It's a great resource. It's a great mine of uh, information about Orwell, which I'd recommend to everyone. We'll put a link in the uh, the, the description to the podcast so um, people can find it. Um, well, thank you, Nathan, for, for joining us on the Burgess podcast. It, it's been an education and a pleasure. Thank you. No, I've really enjoyed myself. Thank you. You have been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. For more information about Nathan Waddell's work, including his Reading Orwell project, visit drnjwaddell.co.uk. For more on Anthony Burgess and to learn how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you have enjoyed listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts?